Hey friends, it's me, Stephanie, your host of Immersive Crime. This week is taking us, in conclusion, to the place that I consider home. This case will span 90 miles of Ohio, starting in Gambier, which is a northeast small college town, and coming to conclusion in the southeast village of MacArthur, Ohio. For my listeners who are not familiar with where MacArthur is, don't worry, most people don't. So, what I do is tell people it's about 27 miles from Athens, Ohio, or Ohio University. And as you know, most people know where Ohio University is because they were the long-running number one party school in the United States. But in my research for this case, I did learn that they have dropped to number 12, which I thought to be very shocking. MacArthur is a tiny village that is in the heart of Vinton County, Ohio. The town only has one stoplight and roughly about 1,700 people living in the village. Every student in the whole county of Vinton attend only three elementaries, one junior high, and one high school. I graduated from Vinton County High School, and it was probably with about 149 other people. So I pretty much knew everyone, or knew of them, maybe not them personally, but I was quiet at the time. I guess what I'm really trying to tell you is that it's a small place. And what happens in small towns? Everyone knows everyone, but everyone also thinks they know everything about everyone. In this tiny place, the racial makeup isn't very diverse. According to the census in 2010, the village was 98.2% of Caucasian people, with a 0.1% of being African American, a 0.8% being Native American, a 0.3% was listed as other, a 0.8% was two or more races, and the Hispanic and Latino race was marked as a 0.8% of the population. Overall, it's a quiet town. What do they rally around? High school sports. Mainly basketball and mainly football. The town will also turn out for prom to see all the kids dressed in their best doing, well, promenation in the parade. So when something happens like this, it's like a ripple effect. It spreads through the town, which can be a lot like the game of telephone, where by the end of the line, the story has grown and twisted so much. But honestly, this case doesn't need help with crazy twists or shock value. I was 13 in the year of 2000, and I don't remember this case happening in time, but I do remember things later when I was in high school, Um, so I will share that at the end of the case. This week's case is the case of Emily Murray. A warning to listeners, this case will contain descriptions that may be triggering to some. As always, please listen with care. Sit back and visualize. The year is 2000, year Y2K, when the world was so worried computers wouldn't shift from 1999 to 2000. When you would turn on the radio in November of 2000, because that's the month our story takes place, you could hear Hemorrhage by Fuel, a personal favorite jam of mine, and This I Promise You by the boy band NSYNC. And if I'm being honest, that's also another personal jam of mine. Something else that was going on in November of 2000 was the first residents of the International Space Station moved in. And something else that happened in November of 2000 is Emily Murray provided a ride to a co-worker after her very last shift at the Pirate Cove restaurant. Now, I would like to introduce you to who Emily Murray is. 
was the daughter of Thomas and Cynthia Murray of New York's Hudson River Valley. Before moving to New York, the family lived in Shaker Heights in Cleveland, Ohio. Shaker Heights is a well-to-do neighborhood in a comfortable suburb in Cleveland. She has two sisters, Nikki and Kate, and one brother named Peter. These were her half-siblings, but they never acted or felt that way about each other. The family had a dog named Basie. I say family dog, but in all reports, it was Emily's baby. Her parents recounted how they were inseparable and the little dog would go with Emily wherever she went and wherever Emily slept, Basie would sleep. They were a well-to-do family as Tom was very successful and smart. He received a certificate signed by President Bill Clinton for the work that he did on a presidential committee that examined the ethics of cloning. Emily was very close to her parents, so close that she would email or talk to her mother on a daily basis, but it wasn't always that way. You see, while she was a freshman at Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio, she went through some depression. It was capped off by a suicide attempt. During her recovery process, she lived with her parents. And while living with them and learning coping skills to get over her depression, she grew very close to her parents. And she realized that she could talk to them about anything, and she would. She would talk to them about anything and everything. At the end of each day, it was a habit for her to curl up between her parents to watch TV or movies and just be with them. After her recovery and she was feeling more focused on her life and her goals, she made the decision to become an Apocostal priest. It is remembered by Reverend Robert Winters of St. Thomas Epicostal Church in Brea, Ohio, that when he met Emily, she was hanging on a cross. You see, she was playing Jesus Christ in a production of the play Godspell at the St. Paul Church in Cleveland Heights. She was only 17. The friendship that blossomed between Emily and Reverend Winters was due to the fact that she spent a lot of time at the Epicostal Church and Youth Ministries, and they met each month at Winters Church. Her work with the youth ministry was preparing her to enter the priesthood. Emily and Winters talked frequently. He was fascinated by her willingness to question, debate, all things spiritual and physical. Many years of her life, it is reported by many different sources that she would do volunteer work and had compassion for all needs of others. This would ultimately be her downfall. This compassion was taken advantage of by a man named Gregory McKnight. Gregory McKnight had a rough but pretty steady upbringing. He lived in Queens, New York with his mother and his brother until Gregory got into some trouble by running with the wrong crowd and his mother sent him to live in Texas with his godparents. But he wasn't in Texas for very long before he headed back to Queens. It still didn't work out for McKnight in Queens, so he decided with some influence by a man named Rudy to head to Columbus, Ohio. He was only 15 years old and this was in 1992. When this rough past becomes violent, it was because of the man named Rudy. You see, Rudy gave McKnight a ride to the capital city of Ohio and, oh, $1,000 worth of crack and told him, get to work. Gregory was told by Rudy, I only tell you once, either get down with a click or get found in a ditch. And these words would resound in McKnight's ears when all that crack was gone and he did not have a dollar of the grand he now would owe him. 
With desperation weighing on McKnight, he heard a rumor that a man in the neighborhood where McKnight was staying just got paid and would be probably looking to buy. And what I mean by that is buy drugs. But as you remember, Gregory didn't have drugs anymore. So this is when he hatched a plan, a plan to ambush this man while he was walking back from a local convenience store. You see, McKnight crouched in front of a playground behind a large bush, holding a 22 handgun. This is when he confronted the man by demanding his money. The man insisted there was nothing in his pockets and tried to go on about his business and head to his house. And that's when McKnight shot him in the back. The man began to run and Gregory traced him, gun in hand and sweat pouring. The man ran up steps to a neighbor's house to ask for help and McKnight shot him again. The man fell in the doorway of the apartment. When the guy couldn't get up, McKnight rifled through the man's clothing to find a little over $100 stashed in his socks. This is the first of three known murders that Gregory McKnight would commit. Gregory McKnight would be sentenced for this murder to a juvenile detention center in Circleville, Ohio. This juvenile detention center was a part of the Ohio Department of Youth Services, and it was established as the home of the Cadre Youth Program. And Greg was one of the program's first participants. The program was designed to take juvenile felony offenders and attempt to rehabilitate them, in part by affording them privileges, but it was also to give them a shot at learning skills, like cooking from the kitchen staff or office management from administrators, or even to earn scholarships to college. Gregory was sentenced to be in this facility for five years, being released in 1997 when he was 21 years of age. This is also where he made some very inappropriate relationships with two women. Some sources call them correction officers, another source called them rec counselors, and another source, one was a rec counselor and the other one was a correction officer. Either way, whatever their titles were, the relationships they made with McKnight were ones that were so concerning to co-workers that they were reported and investigated, but nothing ever happened to the women. However, shortly after McKnight was released from the program, the Cadre Youth Program came to an end. Kim is one of the employees of the program, and she was described in the source as being smitten with Greg. They said that they would act like high school sweethearts, touching and flirting all the time, and always being together. Now, something to keep in mind is that Kim was married and much older than Greg, and her husband was currently in prison. The other person that made an inappropriate relationship with Greg was Kim's sister, Kathy. Kim and Kathy lived together in Ray, Ohio, in a trailer on a huge hill. And this is actually where Greg will move to once he's released in October of 1997. Shortly after his release and moving into the trailer in Ray, as a huge surprise to the women's co-workers, Greg and Kathy got married, not Kim. But you see, now Kim's husband was out of prison, and he was trying to walk the straight and narrow path. He was also trying his hardest to influence McKnight to do the same. But no matter what was asked of Gregory, he would not help out. If he was asked to clean the house, he would make a mess. If he was asked to mow the yard, he would break the lawnmower. And he also had a terrible temper. Greg started putting holes in doors and drywall and basically anything that could be punched, he would punch it. After three years of living this way, Kim's husband puts his foot down and tells Kathy and Greg it's time for them to get their own place. 
This is when Kathy and Greg make their way to Gambier, Ohio, originally to help take care of Kathy and Kim's mother. This is where the paths of McKnight and Emily Murray would cross. Greg gets a job at the Pirates Cove restaurant in the summer. It is reported that McKnight was always flirting with female patrons, the waitresses, female bartenders, basically any woman who would enter the cove was not safe from McKnight. On November 2nd of 2000, Emily decided that this night would be her last shift at the Pirate's Cove. She didn't really need the money and she was missing her early classes due to the late shifts. As the last bit of the crowd leaves the Pirate's Cove and it's nearly 3 a.m., Emily completes her closing duties. And anybody who has worked in a restaurant knows it's vacuuming, cleaning tables, turning chairs onto the tops, just basic things like that. There are only three employees left at the Cove. Emily, their front manager, and Greg McKnight, who was in the kitchen. Around 2.59, it would show in record that Gregory punched out. And eight minutes later, at 3.07 a.m., Emily's record would show that she clocked out. This would be the last record of Emily alive. When she walked outside onto the patio of the cove, McKnight was standing there smoking, and he needed a ride. This isn't something that was abnormal for him. He always needed a ride after shifts. And being Emily, she was more than happy to help. And she knows that he lives just in town somewhere. Now, it isn't known how long Emily was driving before McKnight pulled the 357 Ruger on her, but he did. And it isn't known if she drove all the way to Ray, Ohio, or if Greg took over at some point, but they ended up on State Route 93 South. Now, anybody who has drove this road knows it's so twisty and so hilly, it's like being on a roller coaster. I really imagine that Greg probably took over because if you don't know this road, you're going to drive very slow. Emily's car eventually parked outside of the trailer in Ray, Ohio, and that trailer was now abandoned. It was almost as cold inside as it was outside, and it was a disaster. I'm sure it was one of the scariest places she has ever seen. Trash bags were in piles littered throughout the whole trailer, and wires were hanging in different spots for the, from the ceiling where light fixtures used to be. On November 3rd of 2000, Thomas Murray received a telephone call from his daughter Nikki. She was telling him that Emily was missing. Tom proposed various scenarios about where Emily might be. He weighted the possibilities just as he did in his job. Perhaps she drove to visit a friend. I mean, she did once travel from Kenyon College in Gambier 40 miles to Columbus, picked up an old friend, and they drove 135 miles to the neighborhood in Shaker Heights where they used to live, all because they wanted a local pizza place. Emily's parents, Nikki, and her other sister, Kate, telephoned Emily's friends from Shaker Heights High School, a group of 16 girls who called themselves The Girls. There was no success. Emily's college friends went through her address book, which they found with her wallet, credit card, and driver's license all in her dorm room. The college friends called everyone in that book, but no one had seen or heard from Emily. The information registered with her parents. They asked themselves how far could Emily really go without her wallet, credit card, or ID. 
Weeks would go by and they were papering the town with flyers and searching everywhere with groups. Anytime the Murrays had to leave home in New York to go to Gambier, Ohio, they would fly right back to ensure they didn't miss any calls. Officials couldn't find any evidence of foul play. They were sure that Emily would show up sooner or later with apologies for whatever she's been doing. But the Murrays knew deep down that wasn't their daughter. She isn't one to do this, to go somewhere without letting anyone know. Day in and day out, they went through the motions just waiting for anything. But finally, on December 9th, 36 days later, after her parents learned she was missing, they got a call that they had been dreading. Please be warned, the next part of the story will contain graphic descriptions. On the other end of the line was a sheriff's deputy in Vinton County, Ohio, 90 miles south of Gambier. They were calling to let Thomas and Cynthia know they found Emily's car in the driveway of a trailer. Upon entering that trailer, they found remains rolled in a rug that they thought could be Emily. Emily's parents made their way to Vinton County to identify these remains, and this was aided by a tattoo that was of a dove. Emily had gotten this tattoo as a testament of her faith. It appeared that Emily had been shot one time in the top of the head with an exit wound near the base of her neck. However, the Vinton County sheriffs knew who this trailer belonged to. You see, they were there to issue a warrant for theft of firearms that happened a few months prior. Gregory McKnight was caught. After retrieving Emily's remains from the trailer, the investigators found more remains scattered about the property. These remains would be linked to a missing person named Gregory Julius. Julius was a good friend of McKnight and was last known to be with him in May of 2000. These remains were bones and teeth, and they were found in a root cellar, in a cistern, which is commonly used as a septic tank in rural places, and in trash bags. These remains could not provide cause of death for Julius, but what they did show is that he was dismembered. McKnight had since traded in the car that he was driving at the time Julius disappeared, but being good investigators, they found that car. When they sprayed luminol on the interior of the car, it lit up. It was so much all over that the investigators did not know where to start collecting. Sadly, Julius doesn't have family, he grew up a child of the streets, and when he was reported missing, his significant other was told, he'll come back, just wait longer. And unfortunately, this is where his story ends. Gregory McKnight would go on trial in the sleepy small town of MacArthur, Ohio in 2002. It is reported that McKnight seemed careless and unconcerned that his life was on the line. In the opening arguments by the Vinton County prosecutor, Tim Gleason, he described the indisputable, indisputable evidence against McKnight and asked the jury to start with the possible suspects of being everyone on the planet. He was quoted as saying, as you look for what the evidence shows, it will rule out groups of people one by one. And when you're done, all the way done, there will be one person on planet Earth left who could have killed Emily Murray, and that's Gregory B. McKnight, end quote. The trial only lasts nine days. There are different sources that talk about how it was not a glamorous trial, it wasn't a witty trial, some parts were kind of awkward, 
Um, defense tried to paint Emily in a terrible light based on her mental illness that she had as a freshman. It was rough on the Murrays. But in the end, the jury deliberated for seven hours and hands the judge a verdict of guilty for the murder and kidnapping of Emily Murray and the murder and dismemberment of Gregory Julius. This was followed by a recommendation for the death penalty. Before sentencing, Vinton County Judge Jeffrey Simmons received letters from Emily's family asking him to spare McKnight's life. They said in those letters that Emily would have wished this. On October 25th of 2002, Judge Simmons, fun fact, Judge Simmons is the same judge who married Greg and Kathy in 1998, stated that McKnight deserved the death penalty by lethal injection. McKnight is currently on death row at Mansfield State Prison. Since then, McKnight has filed many motions asking to die sooner. However, recently he removed that request and asked for a new trial because of MacArthur's lack of diversity. And apparently, jury members used racial slurs against Gregory McKnight. And there was a previous case that made some different rules about um, diversity, racial slurs, and racism. And you had to file within a certain amount of days, and he's well over those days. I recently did some looking into where Kathy and Gregory's children are now, and I found that Kathy had passed away. When I was in high school, I took dance lessons in Wellston, and his kids took dance there as well. She was an odd character, but his kids were always nice. And I always thought about how weird that might be when people put two and two together, being a small town and all. In the end, someone was taken away who had compassion for all humans, unwavering, unquestioning compassion. Someone who has those traits were taken advantage of. Emily was a young lady who had the whole life ahead of her. Emily was a young lady who had her whole life ahead of her. Her parents planted an evergreen tree in her honor in their backyard that they frequently look at to remember her. Emily's sister Nikki is now a law student at Cleveland State, and she was quoted in saying the following, I'm pretty much a pacifist, but our family does not want to spend the rest of our lives going to parole board hearings and court hearings to keep McKnight in jail. They finally accepted Judge Simmons' sentence of death by lethal injection, McKnight's life for Emily's, and it was hardly an equitable trade. As always, take time to say Emily's name today and take time to say Gregory Julius's name because they were here and they still matter. Thanks for listening. Until next time.